Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year has gone by incredibly quickly, but it's always nice to pause and take stock. What's something you're proud of in 2024 so far? What's something you still want to accomplish this year? I know I'm guilty of falling into a routine and not always thinking about the bigger picture, but as the great Ferris Bueller once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you can miss it. So it's crucial to take a moment to celebrate your wins and make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you contextualize your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. As you surely know by now, it's not only for people who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is helpful in all kinds of ways, including learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. If you've been considering trying therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and was specifically designed to be flexible and customizable to your schedule. To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash film daily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for August 3rd, 2017. This is Peter Sreda, and on today's show, Ben Pearson is going to join us for The Water Cooler to talk about him editing his travelogue from New Zealand. Uh, I'm going to be talking about building a podcast studio. In the mailbag, we're going to be talking about the best or favorite foreign films of all time. And in the news, we'll be talking about Star Wars The Last Jedi, Star Wars Episode Nine, Stranger Things, Captain Marvel, and Transformers. Right now, I have with me Ben Pearson. How's it going, Ben? Hey, Peter. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing fine. I'm in my new podcast studio that I built inside my closet. I wrote about this in the water cooler on SlashFilm.com. Basically, when I started this podcast, I didn't know anything about audio. And in the last month, it has, you know, been an education, to say the least. Uh, I, I had this Blue Yeti microphone, the same one you have. Mm-hmm. And uh, embarrassingly, I've been using it wrong for the last eight years. I've been talking into <laughs> the end of it like you would a normal mic. But this mic, you talk into the side of it. Um, so that is something I learned very early on with the complaints of echo, echoey sounds. And speaking of echoey sounds, my place is a loft. So it's filled with echoes and you can hear, you know, my dog 
drinking from two rooms over. <laughs> so I took a closet and I put some uh, acoustic foam on the walls. I got a boom arm. I got, I, you know, it, all in all, I, I got a desk. I think I spent like two to $300. Not, not that much. Got some good headphones. And hopefully right now what you're hearing is the, the fruit of this labor. It is a better sounding podcast. And, so, uh, tell me about the acoustic foam. What? Where did you get that? And what is it? Yeah, you can get it. Um, you can get it at Home Depot. You can get it on Amazon. Amazon, it's like I think fifteen dollars for like twelve tiles, and I I think I got two orders of those. Uh, and you basically put them on the the walls, and it it's basically kind of like these rigid foam that kind of prevents echoing it it also uh absorbs sound um mm-hmm. i also have these things called bass traps that you got to put in in like uh the corners of the walls so it it, it uh absorbs more of that bass wow. um yeah there, there's a lot to this um i've, I've <laughs> done a lot of reading online i know what a difference between a pop filter and a microphone uh cover is and all right uh, and i have a pop filter because i've been told that's better so hopefully i'm not popping in your ears uh but um also i think it's good to just have a dedicated place of work so you come here and i feel like i'm i'm doing this Mm -hmm. you're (laughs) doing what you're supposed to be doing in that space (laughs) yes uh and and this week you've been doing something similar but on the video side you went on a trip and you've been editing it Yes. Yeah. So in November of 2016, last November, my wife and I went to New Zealand for two weeks and it was an incredible vacation, like the most epic trip I could have possibly imagined. We uh, flew into Auckland and then drove down to the the southern tip of the North Island and flew to the South Island and Wait, road hold, trips hold on, hold, all around. Hold on a second. What made you decide New Zealand? So uh, we are both big Lord of the Rings fans, and obviously Hobbiton is like a huge draw there. It's become like a major tourist attraction, the actual place where they filmed uh, the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit movies. So that was part of it. And then we'd also just we we like, you know, hiking and doing a lot of outdoor stuff. And New Zealand is um, maybe notorious is the wrong word, but it has like uh, mountains and rainforests and beaches and glaciers and like all of these uh, incredibly disparate environments all in one country. And it's a relatively small country, too. Um, I want to say that there's only like 13 million people that live there. I might be wrong about that. But um But in in any case, it's a very small country. And there's like I know for a fact that there are way more sheep than people in New Zealand. So (laughs) um, so that was a a fact that we learned on the trip. But uh, but yeah, we um, I got a a GoPro Karma drone uh, right before the trip. And we have like a Canon 6D and um, we upgraded our iPhones and stuff to like 4K capable iPhone 7 pluses just to like have all this equipment. And we went out and just you know, experienced this incredible trip and shot as much video as we could on it. My wife had over a thousand videos on her phone alone. So there was a ton of footage for us to sift through. And then uh, ever since we got back, actually, I think we waited about a month or two to really like dive into the footage and start um, categorizing it and everything. But ever since we got back, um, we've just been yeah going through everything and, and um, organizing it and cutting it with Final Cut Pro into a like an 11 and a half minute 
uh, montage video that showcases all of the different places that we went and all the different environments that we were in. It was uh, a super fun trip. And I think anybody who watches the video will probably be like, wow, I really want to go there. So that's um, it, it really serves as like a the whole purpose of it is like instead of a scrapbook or something like that, we can just, if we ever want to remember this trip, we can just, you know, go and play this video. And, uh, it's a lot more, um, you know, it, it really takes you back there. Like, as opposed to seeing a photo, like a still image, like actually seeing a few seconds of video really, um, you know, makes a huge difference when you're like remembering the tactile feeling of being in a place. Oh, for sure. And, and this video looks like it could have been paid for by the, you know, Travel Commission of New Zealand. <laughs> it is beautiful. And y y the way you film it, uh, you have like these contraptions where you put the GoPro on the end of like these strings and swing it around <laughs> you on top of a mountain. It's yeah. like a amazing. I don't know. I feel like if I was on vacation, I would forget <laughs> to get these shots like you're getting these amazing shots of uh of things but uh it, it's beautiful you can I, I believe that's embedded on the water cooler on slash yes, yes. Yep. and uh okay let's move on to the mailbag nicholas e from chicago heights illinois asks what what's your favorite foreign film and why now I know when I presented this question <laughs> to you before we went on the air you you, you were a little uh um, I was freaked out, Peter. Yeah. I was I was completely spooked by this question because I did not see it coming. And this is like a big question, you know, like your favorite foreign film. That's like a huge deal. So I was not mentally prepared to answer this. But after thinking about it for a few minutes, uh, I think you and I both came up with some that we um, that we really love. So I don't know if we really need to like get into the why as much. Yeah, but yeah. At least we can list out a few for people to uh, to seek out well, if they haven't yet. It's weird, though, because I think as film geeks, we're so used to being like, you know, what's your favorite film? And, you know, having a list off yeah. the top of your head. But once you say foreign film, you're like, I don't know. I love so many foreign films. But yeah, wait, I got to like do a mental inv inventory and like ranking of, of right. all of them. Yeah. Um, the one that for me is probably my favorite and it's in my top 10 movies of all time is a film called Cinema Paradiso. And um, it's an Italian film. It was released by Miramax in the 1980s. And um, it's about a famous film director who, as a kid, worked inside a projection booth in the small village in the small town in Italy. And it, it cuts between him as an ad adult, as a famous film director, going back home and uh, him as a kid having his first love. It's coming of age, which I just love. And it's a movie about the love of not just movies, but cinema. Do you know what I mean? Go, the, mm -hmm. the movie going experience. Um, and if you have not seen it, I would highly recommend it to you. Uh, I know there's two different cuts because, you know, Harvey Scissorhands got involved. And <laughs> um, there's one that's much longer and there's one much shorter. I don't remember which one I prefer but that that is my favorite foreign film of all time. What are some of the films on your list, Ben? Um, so the ones that sort of came to mind after my initial panic were um, Holy Motors, which is uh, Leo Carax's 2012 film. It's basically it's it really defies expectation uh, and explanation, but it is like a bizarre fantasy drama that's about 
acting in a weird way. Um, so that one also has a bit of a, a Hollywood connection in, in that sort of thematic sense. Uh, Let the Right One In, the original uh, vampire film from Sweden, is fantastic. Old Boy, obviously a, uh, a stone-cold classic at this point. Um, and then uh, a two, two action movie classics that I really, really love are John Woo's Hard Boiled and The Killer. There oh, are a ton of... Oh, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say there's so many – if you added action to this list, yeah, I mean The yeah. Raid is right. one of the newer ones. But the John John Woo's early work, yeah. that, that shot in – I believe it was The Killer, the hospital scene shot. Uh, oh, Hardboiled. Hard hard that's Hardboiled. Yeah, hard yeah, with the elevator and stuff, the shootout, the one, the long continuous shot. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah. I feel like – we're spoiled today with these long continuous shots with digital filmmaking. Yeah. You go back and watch that. That's on film. You know, if you you're spending yeah. money and if you you mess up, you know, there's explosions, squid shots. You know, you, you know, it, it is much more elaborate than yeah. what you can do today. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. And like, I mean, yeah, like you mentioned, there are so many we could get into like the movies of Tony Jaa and like all sorts of, you know, hardcore, you know, Donnie Yen and all these amazing action stars. But um, I'm keeping it relatively uh, small scale here. Just a couple more I wanted to mention are um, Run Lola Run, which I saw for the first time in college and really fell in love with that film. And then one that I just saw. Uh, right around the time that La La Land came out was The Umbrellas of Cherbourg, which is a French film that is uh, entirely sung. Like every line of dialogue in the movie is sung. And it is just a I think it's like from the 60s. And it was a big influence on Damien Chazelle for La La Land. And it is uh, one of the most purely gorgeous looking movies that I've ever seen. The colors in that film, um, the actors, just the framing and the the costumes and the makeup and everything. It is uh, it's a stunning movie. So those those are the ones that um, that sort of came to me after my uh, my sheer panic at the uh, at posing this question. Run Lola Run was one of the first films I saw in an independent theater, and you know I traveled to Boston, which was my local city, and it, it, just seeing a film like that was just so different than what I was yeah, used to seeing so at the multiplex. There's so much energy in that movie; it's crazy. And I'm actually kind of disappointed in that filmmaker because I feel like. Uh, you know, he did some good stuff like Perfume, Story of Murder, but uh, I feel like he hasn't quite lived up to the potential that was seen in that movie. Another film I have to mention for favorite foreign films is Guillermo del Toro's Pan's Labyrinth, which oh, yeah. uh, which you said when we were talking before the podcast that uh, it, you don't even consider it a foreign film. And, I, you know, it, it does have subtitles. It is a foreign film, but it, it is so um, maybe magical and... Uh, even though it's dark and definitely foreign, um, mm-hmm. it, it, it is, uh, I, I think it does have an American appeal to it. Um, yeah, it's, its, you know, it's like what you were talking about before where it's like, uh, moviegoers always have their list of favorite movies at the ready. And I just, I categorize that movie as like, oh yeah, that's a Guillermo del Toro movie. I don't necessarily categorize it, you know, primarily in my head as a foreign film, but it is, and it's an amazing one. Okay. Let's move on. Now, don't panic. Star Wars Episode Nine is getting a new writer. The film isn't expected to start shooting until January. Colin Trevorrow wrote the script with his writing partner, Derek Connolly, but they are now bringing in uh, a, a writer to help polish that script, and that is Jack Thorne, who wrote uh, Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, and he also... Uh, 
He's been a mainstay of UK, you know, television series and miniseries, working on Skins, Cast Off, The Fades, This is England. Uh, he has an upcoming small screen adaption of Electric Dreams, the Philip K. Dick story. Uh, and um, he just wrote um, the Jacob Tremblay movie, Wonder. He's a hut screenwriter at the moment I, I think he was actually attached to neil gaiman's the sandman for david s goyer i'm not sure if that's still happening mm-hmm. but uh he's coming in uh i don't want to say last minute because he has what six months before shooting starts um and it's probably not to like to- do a total overhaul not that we know i'm speculating mm-hmm. it's probably not to do a total overhaul of the story it, it's probably to more uh polish up character moments and and dialogue i i think they're probably deep into the you know set uh designing and building phase at this point uh so i don't think it's like to completely overhaul the script uh does this give us any need to worry about this movie ben no i don't think so i mean look at um with rogue one you know in particular like gary widow was on that film to start and then i think he either left the project or someone else came on to do a rewrite at maybe a similar time in the production timeline as what's going on here and uh that movie had some maybe some trouble in the post-production side of things but i don't think there was uh there was that you know that many script troubles with it so as long as um yeah i think i think think chris whites came in like eight or nine months before yeah That's right. So I think, you know, especially with the it seems to me like uh, Kathleen Kennedy and the people at Lucasfilm are um, are taking care of their family jewels a little bit more with the saga films than they are on the spinoffs. There have not been nearly as many uh, issues with those as there have been with the spinoff films so far. So I would like to think that uh, that they are really nailing that down um, and trying to avoid any of the uh, the problems that have arisen uh, on the spinoff films. Um, so I, I don't think there's going to be uh, much yeah. reason for us to worry about this at this stage. It, it, it's much smarter to spend your production money in the pre-production phase than it is in the post-production phase it's a lot cheaper to hire a screenwriter for a couple hundred thousand dollars than it is to do millions and millions of dollars of reshoots so i think i think it's smart uh also in the news star wars the last jedi john boyega has done an interview and he mentioned that the movie is going to be a amazing send-off to carrie fisher what do we know about this ben Yeah. So uh, Boyega was talking with ABC News, I think probably to promote uh, his new movie, Detroit, which is Catherine Bigelow's film, which is coming out uh, this weekend. And he said uh, this movie talking about uh, episode nine or The Last Jedi, he said uh, this movie, it sends her off in an amazing, amazing way. And she is still kept alive in this franchise. That's the beauty of it. She lives forever in a sense. So this sounds like a Uh, Heath Ledger and the Joker type of situation where they do not kill the character on screen Um, also comes to mind uh, Paul Walker in Fast and Furious where like the character still lives on in this universe um, and you know could potentially even have uh, impact on future stories just you know from off screen basically Um, and of course she could she could be heading up the uh, the new um galactic senate or something yeah, we, exactly. we, we just hear of her moves right yeah and and those moves could could impact our you know 
primary protagonist characters in a major way moving forward. And I think the initial plan was to have um, was to have uh, Colin Trevorrow's movie deal more with um, with Princess Leia as like a major character. And unfortunately, that's not going to be able to happen. I think the movie had to get reworked a little bit in the wake of Carrie Fisher's death. But uh, but yeah, hopefully what we're talking about will come to pass there where where um, General Leia now will have uh, some actual impact on the story as it continues. And then also some other Star Wars thing that I thought maybe was worth um, bringing up was recently Screen Rant uh, pointed to a Directors Guild of America rule that might explain why Lord and Miller were fired from the Han Solo movie at the time that they were. Yeah, because everybody was like, why if they've completed, you know, eight 80% 80% of the film, why would they fire directors at that point? Right. So basically it boils down to there is a rule in the DGA creative handbook that says that a director who has who has been replaced after directing 90% of the movie has uh, post-production creative rights. So uh, this is uh, something that the guild put in place to protect the directors that uh, that are members so they can't just be replaced at the last minute and – um, you know, by uh, producers who maybe are not happy with the work that they've done or whatever. So it, it's all about a percentage of how much work they completed at that point. So, so, uh, so, so what does that mean? That means that they get to be in the editing room? Yeah, that means that they get, um, yeah, uh, creative control over the edit. I believe that uh, on the most technical level, it means that they have a few weeks to produce a director's cut um, completely un- uh, unmolested, unmessed with by the producers. Like they cannot, uh, you know, uh, change any sort of editorial decision. I believe the directors have the, uh, the right at that point to sit in the room with the editor and come up with an entire full cut of the movie to that. Then I think the producers can sort of go back and forth with, but, um, but at this stage, uh, Lord and Miller had directed almost 85% of the movie. So if they had gone just another week further, they might have passed that 90% threshold. So that um, makes the firing at that specific time seem like a more strategic play on Lucasfilm's part to make sure that they wouldn't have any say over what went on in the uh, the post-production segment than what we all thought before, which was like, this is sort of a blindsiding thing. Like, what are they doing here? What's going on? So it, it seems now that we sort of understand a little bit more of the ins and outs of the G- the DGA rulings, it seems like maybe a little bit more of a shrewd move by Kathleen Kennedy and the, the Lucasfilm team um, who just don't have the time. If they're keeping the same release date, they don't have time to go through this extra step of giving Lord and Miller the time to, oh, you know, produce their own cut. Oh, for sure. And let's not pretend, you know, there's no way Lord and Miller had uh, a director's cut in their contract for a Star Wars film, but it would just delay things. Yeah, quite exactly. a bit for a film that, you know, needs, you know, visual effects and whatnot. Um, you need to get that done ASAP. Um <laughs> Also in the news, uh, we, we, we've suspected this for some time, but the Duffer Brothers, the creators of Stranger Things, have now confirmed that Stranger Things was actually pitched as an anthology series. Uh, speaking with screen, to Screen Rant, they say uh, there is some truth to that. Um, yeah, this was when we were originally pitching it. That was true because we looked at Stephen King's It and we liked that the time jump that that, that they made. So we kind of pitched that. 
then Netflix was really interested in, in it as a series because rightfully so. They were like, I think people will want to continue on this journey with them. And they were right. Once we started building the writer's room and working on the show, we started to develop it and plan it as a multi-season arc. So even though it was pitched as a anthology series, which means, you know, like uh, like Fargo or American Horror Story or mm-hmm. any of those shows where each season is a different story with different characters for the most part. Um, uh, you know, when they went to actually write the episodes, it was envisioned as a multi-season arc. So it's not like that was supposed to be the ending of Stranger Things. I know a lot of people when right. they first saw the first season were kind of like, oh, I, I like that as an ending. That like, you know, you kind of have that jump scare moment at the end and you don't, you know, it's kind of ambiguous of like wh- where things are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that could have easily been the ending, especially if it hadn't been popular and Netflix didn't order another season. Mm-hmm. Um, would you would you have preferred an anthology series? Um, that's hard to say because I haven't seen the second season yet. I love those characters so much and I am a little worried about Stranger Things season two. I, I, you know, I'm a generally optimistic person (laughs) as it, as it stands when I, when I approach a piece of, uh, of content of entertainment like this and I'm really hoping that it's good, but I love the first season so much that it's going to be hard to, um, you know, to, uh, leap that bar uh so i think they could have sideswiped that um that potential problem by introducing a whole new you know cast and a whole new uh angle on the story in an anthology format but i think ultimately even if the second season isn't as great i'm i'm glad to that we'll have the time to spend with these characters again in uh, in a continuous um, sort of multi-season format like that. It's funny that he mentions it because that um, obviously has them as kids and them as adults. And it would have been kind of interesting to jump, you know, to the 90s or the 2000s and follow these characters. I know that's not the definition of, an, of anthology, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, them uh, having it be a sequel, but with totally different actors. Yeah, um, that could be interesting. And, and that obviously could be something that they do uh, if America isn't too in love with uh, Millie Bobby Brown. So, uh, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. So anyways, uh, moving on. Also in the news, there's new rumors surrounding Marvel's Captain Marvel. I don't know much about Captain Marvel, but apparently this might involve the original Captain Marvel. Yeah. So I uh, MCU Exchange, who uh, predicted or broke the story about Thanos's children being the Black Order a few weeks before that story officially was confirmed at Comic-Con, say that Marvel is going to show up in the Captain Marvel movie. And this is the first original Captain Marvel. Uh, I also am not super familiar with those comics, but um, diving into Marvel's super extensive Wikipedia page and uh, with some help from our own Jacob Hall, who is a big expert on all things Marvel, uh, I was able to write up this article that sort of gives a brief history of who Marvel is in very, very short uh, terms. He is a Kree warrior who, in the comics, basically um, becomes a superhero who is like. Um, entangled in this web of this this plot to destroy the earth and his dna gets fused with carol danvers in an accident and that is what gives her her superpowers uh, and eventually she uh, at first i believe she fights under the name miss marvel and then after marvel dies she takes on the captain marvel 
moniker and um, and gets her new costume that everybody is familiar with from the modern interpretation of that character. So uh, this basically uh, confirms to me, as long as this rumor proves to be true, this confirms that um, that we're going to see that same origin story in this movie, or at least a flashback of it. I don't know. I, I think I've, I heard years ago. Kevin Feige say that Captain Marvel is not going to be an origin story, but then since then there's been a little bit of back and forth about what form that script is actually going to take. And I haven't heard any inside source, you know, any rumors or anything about what that script looks like at this moment. But um, now that that it's a prequel set in the nineties, right? Nick Fury. And it sounds like the scrolls are going to be involved, which are Mm -hmm. the enemies of the Kree. And obviously the Kree are how, uh, Captain Marvel gets her powers. Um, yeah. This all out- lines up, I think. Um, yeah, and and the um, that same outlet also speculates that the reason that Carol Danvers won't be in Avengers: Infinity War is because maybe she is trapped in the quantum realm, which is where Janet Van Dyne is presumably trapped in uh, the Ant Man uh, side of the MCU. So um, that could explain why we haven't seen Carol Danvers and Captain Marvel in any of the other Marvel Cinematic Universe movies oh, leading up to this. That would be interesting, and that would also explain why Brie Larson looks like Brie Larson in the 1990s as well as the 2017s. Yes, exactly. Um, yes. Uh, also in the news, uh, Fred Topel is our correspondent at the Television Critics Association uh, event, and he was able to get an exclusive that we ran on SlashFilm.com that Akiva's Goldsman, um, who is a producer and writer of a lot of different films, a lot of different films ranging from I Am Legend, A Beautiful Mind, Batman and Robin, I, Robot. Uh, he's had a very mixed bag, including the upcoming Dark Tower, which we are both seeing tonight and mm-hmm. I am afraid of. Uh, <laughs> he, um, you know, he was brought into the Transformers uh, writer's room where they invented, you know, 15 to 20 upcoming Transformers sequels, spinoffs, uh, you know, reboots, who knows what. And um, apparently he is no longer involved in the Transformers series. Uh, Fr- Fred asked Akiva at the TCAs if he was involved with Transformers and, and Goldsman simply said no. So what that means, I don't know. Was he just involved in that early days of the, the spitballing of all these, you know, upcoming ideas? Are they still planning on doing, you know, these 15 different Transformers ideas that we've heard about? We right. don't know. It's 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 all speculation at this point. But I think we can both agree that not having Akiva Goldsman involved in Transformers is a good thing. He, yes. He, he's generally involved with uh, some pretty bad products. Uh, you know, he's like the Avi Arad. What Avi Arad is to Spider-Man in the Spider-Verse, yeah. <laughs> he is to, you know, uh, a multitude of different uh, franchise movies because he's yeah involved. and the thing is I, I feel like he's maybe a much better producer than he is a writer like I I, th- I don't think the guy is completely untalented he obviously has the ability to get things done and get movies made I just wish that he wasn't as involved in the writing side of the you know the creative uh, spark of these Hollywood films as he seems to be he loves to just sort of like you know, sneak his way into having a screenwriting credit on something. And odds are, you know, looking at his previous work, whatever he does that with is just not going to be as good as it could have been otherwise. 
he he must be one of those guys that's really good in the room because yeah. you know it, it, it's you look at the credits and you're like how is this guy keep on keep on getting hired for these you know franchise yeah. films that are not critically praised not loved by fans and uh aren't you know the biggest blockbusters of all time you know see the yeah. dark tower which we're seeing tonight that does it for the news ben where can we find more of your work on the internet you can find me writing every day at slashfilm.com. You can find me on Twitter at Ben Pears. And you can find me on Twitter at slashfilm. This has been Slashfilm Daily for August 3rd, 2017. If you have questions for the mailbag, please send them to Peter at slashfilm.com. Please go to iTunes. Give us a review. Give us a rate rating because uh, that helps us tremendously. And uh, thank you for listening.